so we are in verses 9 and 10. So we're starting. Chapter 5. We're almost getting through justification. As Matt was saying, you know, condemnation, justification, illustration, sanctification, all the Asians are out, exaltation, application, right? <laughs> Okay, so, um, verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8 just has to summarize so we can kind of keep going in progress here, right? Um, they present two statements. I'll read 6 through 8, actually. So, um, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here Paul presents two statements, right, that com com combine to form a single argument. And that argument or that fact or that principle is that God's love for humanity is absolute, right, in its nature. Because um, there is no goodness in, and Paul proves that because there is no goodness in anybody for God to love them, right, to do these things. There wasn't a reason other than his love for him to send his son to save sinners. Um, he sent his son to die for unworthy, right, rebellious people, people who rejected him, people who looked for the creation rather than the creator, right? The only thing that we can rely on then is his love, not our goodness or our worthiness or anything that we have it's all dependent upon his love to send his son to die for his enemies right um, and so he showed his love by sending his son to a weak and helpless people um, not just sending his son to us but having his son die for us right mm -hmm. while we were actively sinning against him um, we had total animosity toward him didn't really want anything to do with him, and we were his enemies. He declared us as his enemies. And yet, while we were his enemies, he reconciled us back to him, right? That is the definition of God's love for us. So the, the, the argument is, is that since God has showed his love so much for you, and since he has reconciled you while you were his enemy, he will not forsake you. Now that you're justified, you will not be forsaken because now you're his friend, right? Now you are in him. You are, you are communion with him, fellowshipping with him. So Paul uses that sort of logic in the sense that he'd done so much for you while you were his enemy, there's no way that while you're his friends, you're going to lose justification, right? It's a fantastic premise of, of um, never losing your salvation, right? that you are secure in your salvation, right? So he will not forsake you because you are his friends that have become that way by grace through faith. Yeah? So he continues in verses 9 and 10, and he tells us even, so you have that, well, here's much more, right? Even much more things of that, of the believer's future. Um, so if you'd read verse 9, someone read verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Right, so since you've already been justified by his blood, 
how much more will you be saved from God's wrath? Um, it's that same method of logic where he proves the harder, or he proves the easier by doing the harder, right? If he can do the harder thing, then of course he can do the easier thing. And the harder thing is that he saved you, justified you by Christ's blood. It's easy for him to save you from the wrath to come, right? Are we kind of following that train of thought there? So he saved you while you were an enemy. He will, of course, save you from the wrath to come because you are his friend. Yeah? Okay, so then the second much more is in verse 10, if you'd read verse 10. Right, so it's almost a repeating, you know, principle here. Um, so we become God's friend, so it's not reversible. Um, we didn't become God's friend based upon us anyways, so we're not going to lose being God's friend based upon us either, right? Um, God reconciled his enemies back to himself through the death of his son. So it's, it's on the basis of that action of Christ, we will be saved, Right? And since God has done the greater thing, then he will, of course, do the lesser thing. It's the same, same basic logic, just in a different sort of a premise, right? Um, okay, so we will not go, because we're friends, because we were reconciled to God, we will not go through the future uh, aspect of wrath, right? We will actually go through the future aspect of being glorified, right? Of being saved by this life, being saved in this life. So it's more than just escaping the wrath. It's being with him, being saved by his life, right? Um, so we're going to be, we're going to experience the future aspect of salvation. The future aspect of salvation is glorification. We're justified. That's the present, that was the past tense of salvation, right, when you're saved. And then you're being sanctified, which is the present tense of salvation. And then the hope that we have that we will be glorified, which is the future aspect of salvation. And Paul is saying we can hope, have hope without a doubt, because Christ made you friends while you were an enemy, right? Okay, so... So far, so good. Any questions, any thoughts? Okay, so another result, or the fifth result of the believer's justification is in verse 11. So read verse 11, please. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so in addition to the above principles, we we have another aspect or another result and that we can rejoice in the Lord, right? We can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ because we have now received reconciliation. The joy that we receive is not that we're, we're not under wrath, we're not under condemnation, we're not his enemy, we are his friend. And we're going to be saved from the wrath to come, we're going to have eternal life, we're going to be glorified. So we have all these wonderful, fantastic things that nothing you could ever do to earn or deserve and you have them, so a reasonable response is to rejoice, right? You can rejoice in that fact, right? That's, that's, that's the beauty of the tragic life we live in, right? We live, we, as Christians, we have a tragic view of life, 
because all men are sinners, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All will be under, are under God's wrath. All will be condemned unless you follow his provision, right? That's a tragic view of life. All people are going to die unless they believe, have faith in Christ. That's tragic. Not all people are good. They're not inherently good. Our culture says that people are generally inherently good and they're going to be fine, essentially, in eternal, in eternally, right? But as, a, as believers, we have a very tragic view of humanity because God tells us humanity is tragic. Humanity is of a depraved mind. But what, what does that do as we can rejoice because we can view the good things. When we congregate as believers and fellowship or have good things to us, in spite of the world we live in, we have good things that come to us. Right? In spite of the condemnation and in spite of the tragedy that is humanity, we receive blessing and we receive sanctification and we receive glorification and we receive salvation. We receive all these things that should put in our hearts a, a, a heart of rejoicing. Right? If we actually see things as they really are, we should be the least offended people in the world. We should be the least... Uh, you know, snowflake people or whatever kind of terms we want to use, you know, the, you know, where we get offended by every little thing. We know that God views mankind as, as condemned, right? They're terrible. But he saved you by grace through faith, and so we can be joyful, be grateful, and present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice to him because of all the grace, mercy, and blessings we've received. So we are God's personal friend, there's a lot to be rejoicing with that perspective, right? Which goes into trials, right? When we view trials and tribulations and difficulties, we, we see how the rejoicing and joy is a big part of that because it's pulling out of us or drawing out of us the wickedness of our minds, our, our weaknesses, our terrible things that were in the past. And so that's a good thing, right? It's a great thing. So that's why we were talking about you can rejoice in suffering, right? You can, you can view, try, count it all joy when you go through trials because it's pooling out of you all the debased thing. It's getting out. If, if you do what? We talked about last week. If you, it's, it's, a, it's a secret almost. If you access God's grace to your life, that's how you overcome those things. And so again, he doesn't save you and then say, okay, now go be good. Go be holy right, and figure it out. No, he walks along with you every step of the way and gives you trials and gives you tribulations to show yourself, oh man, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm really terrible, you know. And if we don't access the grace of God, beating by prayer, and, and what is it, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? The idea that you really can't do it. You really can't do it. We, we need to be honest with ourselves that we really, even even though we're saved, even though we have all these great blessings. We are so weak initially that if we don't access God's grace, we stay weak. But the more we access God's grace, the stronger our spiritual walk is, the more joy we have, the more hope we have, the more glory we, we have in our lives, right? It's really just a perspective of how you look at yourself in this present darkened world. Okay, yeah? Okay, so to summarize uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, we have 12 blessings. Um, so the first in verse 1 is peace with God, right? We now have peace with God. 
Um, and then, like we said, we have access to grace. We can stand in grace. We have joy and hope. That's verse 2. Verse 3, we have hope and trials. Uh, like we said, hope because trials... So remember that, that order? Trials produce what? Verse 3. Was it? Yes, patience. Patience issues endurance, right? And then endurance gives you what? Character. Hope, hope, right? Hope, character, right? And that hope will not left be left in shame, right? Because you, you're, it's, a, it's not a vain thing, it's a real thing. Your hope in future glorification can be, can be confirmed in you now because of the sanctification process that you see in yourself now. Remember we talked about when you look at the gap or the gain, and if you always look forward and saying, oh man, I'm, I've got a long way to go, but you can look back and say, wow, I've really come a long way. Seeing yourself mature in Christ gives you hope that the glorification will come too, right? So your shame, it won't be put to shame because you've already seen it in your life. You have concrete evidence that you've matured and that you're going to get to that, that place. I got a question for you, Steve. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's fair, like I've contemplated that this set of verses over the weeks. Do you think it's fair, that thing of suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope? In this context, it's towards your spiritual and eternal condition. Do you think it's fair to take that truth and apply it to everyday life? That just my normal suffering that I go through in life. Yes. Amanda's sick. Kids have a cough coming over the cab. It's painful in the house at the moment. I don't want to say I'm suffering at home, <laughs> but it's painful in the house at the moment. But that produces yes. endurance, which produces character. I'm able to love my wife and my kids better because now I can love them through their uncomfort, and that gives me hope that the future of our marriage is going to be like. Can I carry that truth all through life, or is it just in this context of eternal hope? No, I would say that all through life is is eternal life. You're living eternal life right now. We're all living. We are living eternal life on this side of the rapture or this side of you get receiving your glorified body. You're just on this side of it, but you're eternal life. So all these things, I would say absolutely that every aspect of your life is some sort of um, refining time, opportunity to better yourself as far as being more Christ-like. So definitely, def I think, in fact, I would say that that's one of the main reasons of marriage is that, to bring two sinful, arrogant, difficult people together, and they expose, <laughs> expose a lot of stuff, you know, and you really get to learn your character. And that's, that's one of the, one of the benefits of being married. Paul says that. If, if you marry, I mean, yeah, I can ask my wife. What does he say? <laughs> you will have trouble. You will have trouble. Will have right. Trouble. Right. So if you marry, you will have trouble. And that trouble, we shouldn't, I, I hate to say we should invite, but the reality is that's the truth of it, right? That the, 
all of so whether we work, whether we married, whether we have kids, whether we don't, whatever we are, nobody lives this perfect, easy life. And if you do, you're a very weak person, probably. If your life is very comfortable and very easy, your character is not patient. You don't have the endurance. You have all those things. So my answer would be absolutely. Every, I, what I say is everything in your life, there's not like an isolation. Well, this is just a spiritual part and this is just a physical part. It's all you, right? It's all you. Yeah? So take yeah take it take it as a as an opportunity everything take everything as an opportunity. Okay, so verse five, love of God in the heart, gift of the Holy Spirit is another of the blessings. Um, and then verse eight, we have evidence of God's love; He showed it to us. Um, and then we are immune; we actually have immunity from His wrath, right, to come. That's verse nine. We have salvation by Christ's life, verse 10, and we can rejoice in God, verse 11. So those 12 blessings are listed for the believer, right? We have these things, so we just need to remind ourselves of these things oftentimes, right? And that's a purpose of church, is reminding ourselves and helping one another that we have all of these blessings so that the difficulties of life really aren't, if you have that perspective, the difficulties aren't that as difficult, right? We make them more difficult. I think we said it before. I'm my worst enemy, actually. I'm my, I beat myself up more, or I, tell, or I justify myself, or rationalize my behavior, whatever it is I do. I, I don't live in that realm, and the, le the, the less I live in that realm, the less joy I have. The more I live in that realm, the more joy I have, right? Okay, so application. Okay, so what's Paul said so far? Um, in Romans 1, 18 to 320, um, he discusses the totality of sin, right? It's universal. All have sinned, all are condemned of all people, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the righteousness of God, and therefore under his judgment. And then in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 21 to 5 through 11, which he just finished, he then discusses the universality or the totality of justification. All have sinned, but all can be justified, right? That's, that's basically what his presence is. That's what he's saying. He proved that all have sinned, and he proved that there's a way out of God's wrath of being in sin, right? So now he's going to go in and, and show that... Uh, Salvation is available to all people. So you can be justified, but salvation is available to all people. So the way that he's going to show that is through Adam. So we, we need to understand in this next section that there's a little de different definition of sin that Paul discusses. Um, so in the previous section, up until 5.11, God dealt with people and what they did, right? When you commit acts of sin, that's what you do, right? You are a sinner because you, in his definition of sin for, for that context, is that you are a sinner because of what you do, right? He listed all the things that we did, right? We, we have debased minds, we, we exchange the truth of God for the creation, we, you know, all these things, right? But this next little section from verses 12 through 21, Paul is going to deal what what a person is and i say that um, a person is a sinner regardless of what they do 
Are you following that? The first few chapters were about God knows you're a sinner because you do sinful things. Next, Paul's going to say, you do sinful things because you're a sinner. So where did the sin come from, right? Where, how, why are you inherently a sinner? And I, we say this before too. You take a group of 10 two-year-olds and you put them in the room without any supervision. Are they going to share and are they going to be kind? And are they going to like beat each other, right? I mean, they will literally beat each other to get a toy or to yeah. get this. Or, I mean, it's like, my gosh, if you don't supervise two-year-olds, they would kill each other if they without any second thought of it, you know. That should tell you that we're not like little angel, innocent angels, you know. So this next, this next section is going to um, be a, a difference of what sin is. The previous chapters were you were a sinner because of what you do, but now Paul's saying you're a sinner because of what you are, right? You inherited and you had sin imputed to you because you're from Adam. Adam was the representative head of the human race, and we are all descendants of Adam, and we had sin imputed to us. So that two-year-old acts sinful because he is sinful. He or she is sinful, right? We act sinful because it's inherited in us. When we have children, we are giving them the sin of Adam as well, right? That, so that's actually a big difference between Judaism and Christianity, is that Judaism, a sinner is someone who commits commits acts of sin, Christianity teaches that you commit acts of sin because you're a sinner. Okay, so just kind of have that mindset right now as we go through these verses, they'll make a lot more sense as far as getting imputed sin from Adam. So read verse 12, if you would. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sin. Okay, so we learned that justification and reconciliation are true, right? It, it happened, you, it's available, you can have that. Here, here, Paul lets us know that Adam is the representative head of the human race, right? God basically gave Adam power of attorney, right? He says, you're responsible for all human race, right? Um, and he would be act on behalf of hum humanity. Was Adam the first one to sin? Even before that. Satan, right? Yeah, Satan was the first. So it isn't, it isn't the sin. Adam wasn't the first to sin. Um, but he was the one who represented humankind, right? Because Eve did sin, but Eve isn't even mentioned anywhere in here, right? And why is that? Because God holds Adam responsible for that position. And Grace and I were talking about this. It's not quality or value between a man and a woman. It's just order. God said, this is the order. The order is I'm going to hold man responsible. That's it. It's not one's better or one's worth. You can't have one, you can't have a full life, in my opinion, without one without the other. They complement one another, you know. There are exceptions. Yeah, but she disobeyed, you know, regardless. And I, I agree with you that Adam, I, I think I said it before, I believe that Adam knew what he was doing. Like that he, he, he either knew God's character and he didn't believe that he would be kicked out or wouldn't be, didn't believe in that. He knew the love of God. 
And I think that he didn't want to lose Eve because he loved her so much that he was willing to sort of take it for her so that they could be together. That's an opinion because I can't really prove that for scripture, but that seems like a nice story to me. So, <laughs> But um, because God held Adam responsible, you know, and even though, even though Eve was deceived, um, Adam loved her so much that he, he, he either knew there was going to be a way or something. I don't know. But um, so sin entered the world with Adam's fall, right? Um, so it's not a matter of who sinned first, whether Satan, Eve, or Adam, but how did sin come universal and total for mankind? How is it that we are imputed sin, born with sin? It's because of Adam, because God gave Adam that, that authority, that dominion, and Adam fell, so the sin just follows right through that line. Every single one of us can trace our lines back to Adam, and we all have that sin genealogy in us. Um, okay, so the previous section, Paul was discussing how acts of sin in human life and the remedy is justification by faith. Um, he's, he now is speaking of the sin nature, right? That when you, you are doing acts of sin and you can believe that Christ paid for those acts of sin um, by having faith in his work, right? Having faith in what he did. Now Paul is talking about the sin nature, what you have, what causes you to sin. That's the basis of operation for us. The basis of operation for us is a sin nature, right? Um, that sin nature is what causes us to do these sinful acts. So what's the, what is the wage of sin? What is the result of sin? Death, death right? Death is the result of sin. So death came through Adam's sin to humanity. When we're born, we're going to die because that's the result of a sin nature is death, right? Like, like Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and for the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23, right? Um, or 6.13. Um, so we are going to die. Our, our sin nature puts us to death. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were told they would, on the day that you eat it, you would surely die. But did they die? Not that day, not right, right? But that started the process of death. And death, so that's another study we should do, is we should understand what death is from a biblical perspective. Death is literally separation from God, right? Not just physical, uh, uh, you know, cells dying and brain and heart and all those not working. It's separation from God. Okay, so um, God, because God gave Adam that role, that power of attorney really to represent mankind, every human being is looked upon the same way that Adam is, right? We all participated in that sin, that, that rebellious against God, right? We are all are guilty of that same sin. Even though we didn't commit that same sin, that sin nature is in us, and we participated in that because we're humans. We're, that's the difference between us and animals, right? So we will suffer the consequence of Adam's sin, and that is physical death. That's the wages of sin is physical death. So that's the, that's the principle of imputation. His sin is imputed to us, right? And there's nothing we can do about it. We can't, we can't 
we can't uh, stop it. It came to us, we were born with it, right? Um, so all will die. Um, okay, so people don't die because of their individual acts of sin. Um, they die because in Adam we have a death sentence, right? So everybody, whether you commit five sins or ten sins or a billion sins, you have the death sentence in you. It's not a matter of quantity of sins, right? The quality of sin is in you. It's already there. The, 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 the sin nature is full of sin. So the quantity, so not believing in Christ is one of many sins, right? Are we, are we kind of following that? That your, your sin nature has already condemned you. You're already going to get death. Not believing in Christ is not the the way is, is not going to prevent you is not the way to prevent you from salvation. You are already prevented from salvation because of your sin nature. Does that make sense? When infants die, I mean, just an, an explanation or a little illustration. Um, when infants die, they haven't committed any sins yet, right? But they still die, and the wages of sin is death. Right? They don't, people don't die after they become accountable to their thinking. They will die at any age, right? And two or three days old, they die. That's, that's evidence of death, uh, of the wages of sin in an infant, that sin nature that carries through. So Adam's sin was imputed to them as well. There are a couple exceptions though, right? Of those who will not receive, or who have not received death. There's two in the Old Testament. Anybody know those two? Enoch, Enoch and, Elijah. and Elijah, right? And what about, what if, there's one in the future. A big one in the future. The rapture, the rapture right? Oh, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> I'm like, who else? <laughs> Maybe us, right? Maybe us. Um, and so, but that's an exception to the rule. And that God has to divinely intervene to say, no, I'm going to take you up in a whirlwind, or, oh, Enoch, just come with me, you know, type thing. And in the rapture, they say, come up here. And the trumpet sounds, and we all go, right? Right. So, so there is an exception. Just had to throw that out there. Um, but it is a divinely ordained thing that he does on his own, right? Okay, so we have, we're, Paul's painting a picture. We have this personal sin. We commit acts of sin. We have this sin nature. We inherited it from Adam by imputation. So we've all participated in Adam's sin because Adam's sin has been imputed to us. Yeah? So let's read verse 13 and we're going to sort of see Paul bringing this out. So read verse 13 if you would. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So like we talked about before, if there is no transgression of a specific law, right? The, the law tells you specifically what you should or shouldn't do, and you will do it anyways. That's a transgression, right? But before the law of Moses, right, sin was still indeed in the world before the law was given. So who, what, what the, between the people, between Adam and between Moses, what, what condemned them? Right? That's kind of the question you should be asking. What basis of law did they have to sin, right? To be sin, to, to, to earn the wrath of God, right? 
And the answer is that human sin existed before the law of Moses was given, right? Um, it, was, it existed because of Adam's sin, right, his fall, and not because of the law of Moses, because they all died, right? Noah died too, right? So people died without the Mosaic law because they still they had that sin nature, regardless, right? So remember we talked about uh, sin operates on some kind of basis, right? In the law of Moses, that was an, uh, a revealing of how sinful you really are because you know what you should or shouldn't do. So you, when you willingly do the things you shouldn't do, you are transgressing the law, right? You are transgressing and, and therefore sinning, uh, committing acts of sin. The sin, the sin nature that we inherited from Adam. But what made behavior wrong? How did they know? Yeah, but there was no law. There was no. Shall not kill. You know, they Well, that that's that's the point that he's making. The 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 point that he's making is that. Well, read verse fourteen. Right, so the wages of sin is death. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Um, even those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam had a specific commandment, don't do this, right? So that was a transgression. But people still died after Adam up until Moses. Why? That's the question you're basically asking, right? What condemned them? The con condemnation was the imputed sin of Adam in them. That's what con So you see how it's hopeless. Right? It's hopeless because your imputed sin, right. no matter what law, no matter what, what thing there is, you're hopeless because you had this imputed sin and you're going to die. Morning. Yeah. So it's not just by action. Yes. It's, it's just in you. It's hopeless. It's, yes. It's, well, it's so that's what he's saying. Yeah. Right. So that's what he's saying. It's not because yeah. you broke a law, it's just. You're a yeah, so even though you have a conscience law in you, yeah. right, even though the law of God is written in your heart, you're still condemned, whether you break that conscience or not, you're condemned because you've been imputed sin. It is hopeless. You have nothing. It's helpless. It's hopeless. It's, you're worthy of condemnation. We're just talking about really nice things here. So. <laughs> you're hopeless. Uh, yeah, there you go. And so... You're right, Matt. Even though, even though they didn't have a Ten Commandments written on the board, it says thou shalt, thou shalt, or whatever, mankind is held responsible because he, he did the same act of sin as Adam because it was imputed to us. Well, I mean, yes. And they do go along with what the culture, because there's the Hammurabi, there, there's a, the, the law of Hammurabi, and then there is a, another one. Mm -hmm. so maybe to, take to, a, to I'm going to take that guy's blame. <laughs> well, think of Cain, Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. What do we find out right away, right after they're left the garden? 
there's these two brothers, right? And one doesn't like the other, and so you know, it's like oh, you're dead. You know, they knew, and he, he. I mean, I don't. There's a lot of reading in between the lines of that story because you don't have a whole lot there. But yes, definitely they knew. They, they, they definitely knew that they were in a sinful state, right? When they were kicked out of the garden, especially them. I, I, I would say that they, the garden was still there. It's just nobody could go into it, right? There was an angel protecting it from people going in there. So they knew there was holiness. They knew there was righteousness and that they weren't because they couldn't be in there, right? And Cain was marked, so nobody could kill him because if they saw that mark, they know they couldn't touch him. So, yeah, there was revenge. There was, in their hearts, there was revenge and hate and anger. This one. So the, pr the proof of sin is death, right? Death is what proves that sin is existing, that it is there. The wages of sin is death. Death, you will not escape death, unless we talked about the you know, divine interventions, but you will not escape death. Even though you're justified, even though you're saved, you will not escape death because that sentence is still in you as far as your physical body, but we have hope that the salvation, the justification, the sanctification that Christ has given us, we go to be with him. We go to be glorified with him, right? So, like I said, death, Paul is saying death still reigned, even though there was no law, there was no list of the things to follow or not to follow, death was still king, right? Death still occurred to every human being on earth between Adam and to Moses. So what was it that charged them? The imputation of Adam's sin. That, that's what charged them to be guilty of sinning and worthy of death. Yeah, that makes some, some sense. Okay. They did live a long time. They did. Yeah. <laughs> long time, right. Um, I mean, another discussion we would have too is we're not, you know, we, we've absolutely devolved, you know, I mean, they were stronger, healthier, you know, so smarter, so many, we now live in a debased mind, a debased culture that, you know, we were, I would say we're very pathetic compared to the way they were, you know, you know, just physically and spiritually and mentally and all those things. So, okay. So. <laughs> well, because, you know, they, God um, got rid of them. All yeah. eight of them survived. Yeah. And up to that point, right? Yeah. So. Well, up to that point, they, they lived they hundreds were, of years. Yeah. So you'd have to, I, I would just say that up to that point, you live hundreds of years. You have to be a little bit physically stronger than living oh, 80, yeah. 80 years or whatever. So. But that doesn't so Death still came to them, right? And the judgment still came to them. Okay, so. Verse 14b, read 14b. Did we read 14a? Yes. Okay, so 14, who is a figure of him that was to come? So Adam was the one man who committed one act with one result. Adam committed the act of sin. It was imputed unrighteous to everybody. Death, right, is a result. So he became a type of another man. Right? The other man is Christ, who is the last Adam. So Paul's now comparing and contrasting Adam, the, fir the first Adam and the second Adam, or the last Adam. Um, and he performed one act, and the result was life. Adam performed one act, the result was death. Christ performed one act, the result was life. Right? And so now Paul's going to kind of go into this, this con contrasting of two humans, two men, um, Christ being the God-man, the hypostatic union, you know, 
100% God, 100% man. So he is a figure of whom, of him, of whom to come. Um, so read verse 15. We're going to see a little, some more contrast, and we'll end here shortly with that. So read verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For as many died through one man's trespass, much more has the great God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Abundance abounded for many. Okay, so we see that we're hopeless, right? We have this imputed sin. It's not even anything that we did or we could do. It just came to us. The sin nature is in us. It's helpless. It's hopeless. One man did that to us. One man is going to get us out of that, basically, right? That's what he's saying. Um, so the trespass and a free gift, that's what Paul is contrasting. There was a tr one trespass, and then there's a free gift, right? The result is the free gift is greater than the trespass, right? Because of the trespass of Adam, many died, right? All of us have died. Um, but because of the grace of God, the, gift, the free gift will overflow to many. Um, again, it's not, it's not quantity of sins. It's the quality of one, right? Adam, Adam's one sin gave death to all. Christ's one act of righteousness gave life to all who would believe in it, right? There is a qualification. You have to believe in it. Um, Adam was the author of death. Christ is the author of life, right? And the results of life that Christ gives is far superior than the trespass or of Adam's fall. Um, so Christ's work didn't just um, negate Adam's fall. It did way more than that. Um, it's it's much more than what Adam had lost. Christ has given much more, right? It's another sort of much more premise um, in the sense that Christ not only just makes you, uh, gives you a clean slate, right? We, we might think of when you become saved, okay, now I have a clean slate, I get to start over, right? No, you actually all, you, you don't even have a slate anymore. There's no record of your wrongs, right, in a sense. That you haven't, you know, you were in the negative and now Christ got you to the zero. You're neutral and now it's up to you to do these things. So Adam put you in the negative, Christ puts you in the infinite positive, right? Infinite positive. So it's way more, much more, as Paul's saying, um, to, to give you the blessings, the, the gifts, the grace, all those things that he's been given us. It's much more than just being now made neutral, right? Made zero on the number scale. Do we kind of understand that? Okay, so that's the first contrast, and next week we'll go into the other contrasts, but that's what we're going to start seeing is sort of this contrast between the two atoms, um, the first atom and the last atom. Okay, so let's, let's pray. Father God, we bow our hearts, Lord, before you just in awe and in awe of your blessings that you've given us. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. In fact, we were in a position of, of deserving condemnation and your wrath and that we would die physically and spiritually away from you. Yet you provided a provision and you breathed life into us that we might respond positively. And we are so grateful that, that you breathe life into us and that we have hope we have perseverance and we have endurance and we have patience so that we can have a character of Christ and be more Christ-like. 
Lord, help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Help us to remind us that you are the author and that you're finishing our faith. Remind us that we can come to you. We can access your grace with peace and joy and hope to overcome trials and tribulations, which are there to mature us and grow in us and to give us wisdom and to give us more uh, character like you. So let us have joy in trials and let us view them with pulling out of us the, the wickedness and wretchedness, wretchedness bit by bit. Thank you for that perspective, and we ask, Lord, you to remind us of that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.